It is quite an honor to be asked to, to speak to you all when there are so many uh, really special people here. So uh, I am grateful for the honor. I appreciate the chance to be here. And uh, I'm going to start with a little story. Just about six weeks ago, my youngest daughter, Jenny, had her first grandchild. So I am now a first child, my fifth grandchild. Details, details. <laughs> I, I'm not in a hurry for them to have their first grandchildren. But as we held young, young Violet in our arms and we shared photos and all that goes with new babies, the inevitable contest begins between different sides of the family. You know the contest. Oh, she looks just like... <laughs> the poor kid is right. So we have two sets of grandparents subtly vying for who does the baby really look like each one submitting photographs of <laughs> ancient ancestors to prove, don't you see this? Isn't it the same? Now, I am mentally challenged in the facial recognition department. I never see anybody in anyone. You, they, have, they have to have the exact same beard for me to think that I could see it. But there is all, isn't it? And I suppose to those who are less facially recognizable challenged than I, there are certain, oh, it's her eyes. It's her eyes. Oh, the forehead is, is his. It's a forehead on a kid. Wait 20 minutes, it'll change. But there is this desire to link what is presently in our arms to the trail of DNA that goes before it. There is this need, maybe, to say that what we have now is linked genetically to our past, right? And every grandparent, every aunt, every uncle tries to contribute to that need. But even if, like myself, you, I don't see it, it still reminds us of a very clear truth. And that truth is capsulated in a very simple phrase. Everything begets according to its kind. It's a very simple truth. You do not have baby kangaroos birthed from an elephant. 
you do not plant corn and reap string beans. There is this historical connection between the genesis of the item and the item. And we find in those new lives the connection to the things that went before. I'm, when I was thinking about seeing all of you and getting an opportunity to share with you, as I, as I thought hard about what, what I should be sharing, especially now as we are at the, the, the beginning of the next wave conference and we have leaders from around the world gathering here with you to, to hear, to learn, to be equipped, to be strengthened in the things that God has called them to do and how those things align with what has what God has called you to be and do. I thought I would like to just rehearse, if I might, a, a little bit, perhaps blandly, uh, rehearse some of our DNA. Because everything begets according to its kind. My young granddaughter, Violet, has no idea of her Russian grandparents. She doesn't know she shares their DNA, but she does. She doesn't know quite yet that she shares the DNA of this crazy grandfather. Oh, but she does. She is completely ignorant of all of the life and the energy that has gone into making her who she is. She has inherited that without conscious effort. But that inheritance has by and large helped form who she will become because everything begets according to its kind. That is true genetically in animals and in plants. It is true spiritually in churches and movements. Everything begets according to its kind. And when you are born into something, you inherit all of that has gone before, even without your consciousness. When you joined Lifeline Church, if it was six months ago or 16 years ago, you inherit something. And that inheritance helps form who you are. But there are other parts of the story. My first, second daughter has four children, two of whom have been adopted. And as the older one, the first, first one, has been adopted, they, she's begun, she's now 14, begun to question, what's my DNA? I don't have the same skin tones as 
my mom and dad, and if you know my daughters, and my daughter and her husband, if you had a can of spray paint white, you couldn't have made them whiter. They are very white, <laughs> light-haired, really white. And their first daughter is not. And so when you're looking at white, white, not white, it's easy for us to say, well, what am I then? Because even as, as she's grown older, she's become aware that you inherit DNA. And, and for her, there are some painful parts of that. There are some un, still unresolved questions as her teenage years emerge. But they did a uh, DNA test for her, right? You can send away relatively inexpensively. She wanted to know who she was. And so here, who's Swedish and who's Finnish and who's Italian and who's Irish? And, and so the, everybody goes through that at school, right? And, and, and in her family. And my, my, our side of the family is Scandinavian and Irish and Italian, and my son-in-law's family is, is Irish and Italian, and so there's this whole mix that she wants, what am I? So we sent away for a DNA test. And so she got her DNA results back, and she is o over 50% Italian. She is West Indian for the, the other 49%. She is more Italian than her father, who is like 25% or something percent Italian. It's a great glory for her to be more Italian than he. Dark skin and all. You know, I'm the most Italian in this family, she says. <laughs> yes, you are. That sense of who she has been genetically in the past helped her figure out who she is today. Even though she had to work harder to track that than her other siblings. Your DNA impacts who you are. So I thought what I would do, if you will mind the exercise, is I would like to, I'm a little bit from an outsider, but I have been around for almost two years now. <laughs> almost two, maybe 30, something like that, somewhere. And walk with you through what has happened, and I'd like to do that by, if I might, doing a DNA test on us. All right? Here is the DNA. I'd like to read the, some of the DNA that we have inherited, although it was generations ago. And I'd like to read about our DNA from Acts chapter 2. And this is, if you are familiar with the Bible, you are familiar with the story of Acts chapter 2. is really the beginning 
of what history has called Christianity. It is the start. It is the, it is the time when the Holy Spirit was sent from the resurrected Son of God to his gathered group of disciples. And it was the launching of this new era. This, it was the birth of a new moment in history. And it began with Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost, and uh, that sermon is there. And I'd like to sort of wrap up that time at the end of Peter's sermon. And there is, um, uh, he's finished preaching, and he's sort of explaining now what happened. And I'd like to do that beginning in verse 40 of Acts chapter 2. I am reading the New American Standard Version. So uh, please, it's probably not what you are holding in your hand. So uh, if you want to just listen, that would be great. This is Peter now, right after his preaching, verse 40. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place with the apostles, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. That's the rest of the story. That captures if you will, that's a snapshot of the spiritual DNA that God birthed into our world at the beginning of what we call the Christian era. There's an interesting reflection, and I would just like to walk through that and examine your DNA. begins with Peter saying, with many words he kept on exhorting them, be saved from this perverse generation. Make sure you get rescued from this generation that has twisted the truth, that has twisted reality. Make sure of your own rescuing. To be saved means to be rescued. It is literally a word that means someone has come and rescued you. It has, someone has pulled you out of something. The thing that God pulls us out of is a way of being, a way of thinking, a way of evaluating, a way of living, a way of choosing that has twisted the things that God originally intended. We were born into a twisted mindset. We, were, we inherited from the world around us. In spite of what we were originally created to be, we inherited something that has been twisted and deformed and intentionally misaligned and misused. We were born into a perverse, into a twisted. Now, we 
always love to think of perversity as being sexual in nature, and there is certainly a sexual component to perversity. But there are intellectual components. There are emotional components. There are relational components. There are governmental ideas. What the word is? I lost the word. There's more than one area that has been twisted. It is not just our morality in terms of sexuality. And the generation that we were in some 30 years ago was perhaps differently twisted than the the initial generation here in Acts chapter 2, but it was twisted. It had been perverted. It had been... abused and broken and and made to be what it never was supposed to be. You were born into a world that was never intended to be what it actually was. You were born into a way of thinking that was never intended to be the way that humans thought. You were born into a very selfish, a very very twisted, a very uh, desirous lustful in in every way, not just sexual. You were born into a world that was thinking and living and valuing and wanting what it never was intended to think and view and value and want. And we live there. Like young, my one uh, one niece, her parents were born in New Jersey. She was born in Virginia, southern part of the United States. It was hysterical to watch her pronounce words like southerners pronounce words. We wanted to say, that's not how people speak. But it is how the people she learned language with spoke. And whether your heritage was English or Irish or or African or European, you kind of learned to speak the language like the people you were with. You picked up that tone. And some of you have tones that mirror both. I remember the first time in the Caribbean that I met a person of color with an English accent. Nobody in America who was a person of color spoke with an English accent. Where did you learn to speak like that? Because that's the world you grew up in. My nieces and nephews who were born in the South speak with a Southern accent. It's it's bizarre. But they do. And you spoke the language of the generation that you were in. Because you grew up there. Even if those weren't the ways your parents taught you, you learned life in that context. And we had that struggle. Because there is this cultural way of being that we inherit without realizing it. We we learn to think in ways that we don't realize. And that's who we are. And when the gospel comes into your 
life, when you hear the preaching of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the proclamation that God has appointed him to be the ruler and the savior for all the world, that here is the way that God brings that which is broken and twisted and makes it straight again. When you hear that the way that happens for you and every human being is through the resurrection of his son and the appointment of Jesus as the one who can forgive and change all of humanity... And when you surrender your knee, the message to you is make certain of your rescue out of the twistedness that you have been living in. There is a need to exit the perversity of thinking feeling, wanting, and living that we grew up in. The gospel comes and it calls people out of this world, out of the way of thinking, out of the rules of the, of the culture, out of the biases of our, the, the air we breathe. The gospel calls us out of those things. God didn't come to make me a really good American. Could there be even such a thing? (laughs) It's a paradox. But God didn't call me to follow Jesus so I'd be a really good American. He didn't call you to follow him so that you'd be a really good Englishman. Or a really good... Ukrainian, really good Peruvian. He didn't call any of us so that would be really good at our culture. As we stood up after we bowed the knee, he turned to us and said, follow me. And then he walks away. And either we follow him wherever he goes, or we stay where he found us. There is not an alternative. There is not an alternative. You cannot become a follower of Christ and stand still. There is a contradiction of terms. You either are following or you are not following. You cannot adhere and stay in the same place. And those of you who have been following Jesus Christ for many, many years will, will honestly say, I am way different as a person today than I was a year ago and ten years ago because I have been following the Son of God. I've not just believed in Him. I've not just hung the trophy of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on my bedroom wall. I've not, saw, I'm not just framed the glossy photograph of Jesus and said, oh, see, I, I believe in Jesus. I am not a believer in Jesus in that sense. I am a follower of Jesus. He never stays in the same place because he's not done with this world. He's not done with today. He's not done with England. He's not done with the U.S. He's not done with Guyana. He's not done with Africa. He's not done with South America. He's not done anywhere. He's moving. And either you follow, which makes certain your rescue, or you stay still. 
And when this movement in the early part of the first century was born, and when this movement in the later part of the 20th century were, was born, it was born for the same thing. It had the same DNA. We were not going to be content to be good at being English or American. We said, no, no, I don't want to be good at what I lived in. I want to be good at following Jesus Christ. That's the only thing I want to be good at. If I'm, not, if I'm good at anything else, so be it. If I'm, if I'm horrible at everything else but good at following Jesus, I will consider my life a success. It's the only thing I want. And you were born with a full, wholehearted commitment to become followers of Jesus Christ, to get out of the way of doing things, of thinking and being that was prevalent in the world at that time and is prevalent in a growing form in the world that you live in now. It's not enough to be good and survive who you are right now. You are called to be followers of Christ. And this movement began with a wholehearted, fully surrendered commitment. We will follow him. That's it. Full stop. No more. What are you about? We're about following Jesus. That's why many of us don't even like identifying with the word Christian. Because it has political connotations that don't reflect who we are. It has religious connotations that don't reflect what I'm all about. I don't want to be that. I want to be a person known for following Jesus. I want to be somewhere else tomorrow than I am today. Because I'm following him. I want to make certain that I am rescued from this perverse generation that I still have to live in. That I work in. That I school in. I, I want to be rescued from that. I, I don't want my life to be conformed to the, to the crookedness of the world I am in. I want my life to be conformed to the straightness that comes to those who follow and inherit Jesus Christ. That's who we are. That's our DNA. Our DNA is, it is not enough to be good Christians, good English, good Sierra Leoneans. We are, we are followers of Christ. It's not about the world we live in. It's about the one we follow. That's our DNA. And the, the earliest of congregations is birthed with that DNA. Save yourselves. Be certain of your salvation, of your being rescued from this twisted way of being that you have found yourself in. But what happened to us once we began to commit ourselves to follow Jesus Christ, the first thing that we realized about the difference between being a follower of Jesus and the age that we now lived in was that the age we lived in was marked by selfishness and independence from one another. That that was one of the key characteristics of the age we were born in. Everybody was looking after himself or herself. That there was all about me. It was all about what I get out of this. It was taking what you can. It was making sure you were okay. Making sure you had enough money. Making sure you had enough recognition making sure it's all about yourself 
It's all about me. I still get mileage. Sometimes when talking to my clients, I will joke. And I say, well, about all this whole meeting that we're going to, the, the bottom line is it's really all about me. And my clients laugh. But I don't know if they think I'm serious or not. But I'm having fun with it. But we realized that I will not be able. Hear me carefully. I will not be able to, be, to get untwisted like I want to be without walking with other people. That sometimes it is the other people who expose my twistedness. If we are all walking, leaning this way. Come on, Augusto, come here. If we are all walking, lean this way, right? Here we are. We're all fine. We're all fine. This is normal, right? Come here, you, come here, all right? You stand up straight. You stand up straight, right? Straight. Right? Move a little over so I can get past you. It's this jerk who's straight... No, stand straight. If we're leaning this way, it's this jerk who points it out. Because if everybody leans the same way, we don't notice. It's the clown who's different. Thank you, guys. It's the clown who's different that points out that we're not straight. I need you to point out where I'm not straight. I need you to challenge me because I am a selfish son of a gun. I am right as rain, and if I'm not right, I will change to be right so that I am right. For the glory of God, of course. (laughs) I need you. And that's the first thing I came to understand when I decided to follow Jesus and I asked him to get me out of this perverse world I was living in, to make me straight again, that the first thing he did was give me people in my life who would challenge me by their differences. And I would be forced to face myself in the word of God and in the face of my friends. I need, you need, we need each other to even understand what straight is. We have inherited that in so many areas of our lives. There are people in America who believe that if you vote a certain way, you could not be possibly a follower of Christ. All followers of Christ vote like this. Although they would probably be leaning the other way. (laughs) Did I say that out loud? All followers of Christ are this way. And the first person that comes along, and even if they lean this way, it's like, whoa, whoa, you, you can't be a Christian. I had a friend of mine many, many years ago now with the first time that faith got in a conversation in, in politics. said to me, yeah, but this person claims to be born again. But they're ex-party. That, you don't think they could really be born again and be that party? I'm thinking, holy mackerel. Have we drank the Kool-Aid of our own culture so well that we don't see 
that. We are just, we are just baptizing American values and calling them godly. That's the heart of perversity. I change the rules to make me right. But we need each other. And so back, way back, late 60s, early 70s, when God began rescuing so many uh, of, of young people in those days, and there was this great movement of the Holy Spirit, and many people were coming to Christ, it, it, it filtered out in some ways when, when people began to say, but we need each other to do this. It's not about making church life in England or church life in America uh, more bodies in the seats. It's about making more followers of Jesus Christ. And whatever that takes, that's what we're going to do. And that challenged some of the ways we thought about church. It challenged. You, you guys, many of you don't remember. We, I had to fight to be able just to sing scripture choruses in a meeting. Because Christians don't sing from the Bible. They sing from the hymn book. I lost friends over that. I, I was offered a, a, a youth pastorship at a church, but I was only offered that on the proviso that I would never allow any of the youth to meet in homes. We all have to meet at the church building. I said, you don't want me. You think you want me, you don't want me. I am so far away from that mindset that you will hate me in a very short amount of time. We're challenging the status quo that church and culture were the same. And, and your leaders, many of whom went through years of, of work and learning, realize that we have to rethink even what we think about church. And so rather than just have fancy meetings, because I love the fancy building that you have here. <laughs> we said, no, it's about relationships. It's about learning to love one another in the purpose of God. It's learning to love one another and to walk together, not just hold hands and sing Kumbaya. Oh, when we had those big conferences in those days and there'd be 10,000 Christians all singing and worshiping together, we thought, oh, this is heaven. No, this is deception. <laughs> you can hold hands and swing back and forth and say, oh, I love you, brother, because you will never see them again. <laughs> it's that jerk in your home group. That's the jerk you can't walk with. And it sounded good when we started, but it was painful to get through it, was it not? Those of you who've been around for usually, oh, it was pretty painful. There were hurt feelings, there were lost friendships, there were struggles that we had more than we can count and more than we would like to remember. And so we made lots and lots of mistakes 
we did things wrong, they did things wrong, I don't really care about it, but somewhere in our DNA came this longing. We are called to walk together. We are called to walk in honesty and integrity and in love and in commitment, and we will pursue that regardless of its cost, regardless of our failures, regardless of our weaknesses. We will not shrink back from what the Lord has called us to, to be his people walking together uprightly with integrity and with compassion. Church became important to us, not because we needed some place to stick new believers so they would tithe. Hmm? Church wasn't just so we could get people together so we could get their offerings. Church was a place where you learned to live out your faith, where the teaching was not about what you're supposed to believe, but what, how are you supposed to live your life. You've heard me tell the story of the, one of our newer converts was a nurse. and We had been living, she'd been following Christ for about a year and brand new believer, never seen other believers in, in any other context. And so she was nursing in the hospital and she happened to see one of her patients have have a Bible on her nightstand. And so my friend was thrilled. Oh, 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 a Christian, a Christian. And she says, oh, I see that you're a Christian. I'm a Christian too. Oh, oh, wow. And the Christian, well, praise God, the woman in the hospital bed said. And so um, are you ready for the, the Antichrist? And you're facing the blah, 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 blah. She goes through all this end times rigmarole. And my friend looked shocked and completely bewildered and she said well I I, I don't know any of that and the woman in the hospital bed very indignant said well what are they teaching you in your church she said well I don't know they're teaching me to love my husband and to and to serve in my community and to be a good mom and and to and to walk honestly with my friends and and, and to, to do right with my money and, and the way I treat people. They didn't tell me about the Antichrist. I loved the woman's answer was, oh. Oh. It's the answer. To this day, I don't know if my friend even knows anything about the Antichrist. I don't even know if I know anything about the Antichrist. But I'll tell you what, she and her husband have walked together for years and their children serve God today. What's the gift to the future generation? Hmm? Knowledge of the Antichrist or families that walk together? We decided that teaching was about how to live your life and how to live it together. And so we taught what we needed to live and to follow Christ. We taught that. And church was born. And then as we grew together in church and we struggled and as we learned uh, about that, as we learned to walk together and learn to seek the presence of God together and learn to pray together and learn, learn to fellowship together and learn to be part of one another's lives, uh, we, we, God began to stir in us. It's time to make sure that you give away what you have gotten. It's not about making you happy as churches. It's about serving the world around us. And be slowly began to be birthed in us the message of the kingdom of God. It was always there in our hearts, but it, be, it grew in importance as we realized that we had learned about walking together. Now we needed to learn how to serve the world around us. Sometimes preaching the gospel, sometimes caring for those in need. 
And the message of the kingdom began. And, and we've learned that God's plan for this world is bigger than us. And the church is not the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is not the church. But the church is called to serve the kingdom. The kingdom exists without the church, thank God. Because there have been ages in history when the church has been absent without leave. But the kingdom kept moving. And God kept saying, I've got my DNA here. I've got my DNA here. And he would birth movements all around the history of the Christian movement. And it would begin to be restored again. God has never left the world without servants of the kingdom. But the church is not the kingdom. And the kingdom is not the church. They are different things. And we serve as sons and daughters of the kingdom. We live our lives in church, but we serve the kingdom. And that has been a movement. So as we look, the question you have, when you look in the mirror and you say, am I more Italian than my father? Or whose forehead do I really have? I want to say there are, th quickly, three things. That's the history, briefly, or longly. Three things that you need to do to make sure your DNA gets passed on well. Make sure you inherit and pass on as you serve the kingdom of God. There are three things you need to do reflected in this passage differently. Firstly, you need to learn to live it. You need to learn to live it. You need to learn to live as a follower of Christ. Live it. You can't talk about it. You can't talk about relationships. You can't talk about accountability. You can't talk about serving. You can't talk about love. You can't talk about discipleship. You, you have to learn to live it. It's not measured. You are not going to be given a, a multiple choice quiz at the end of your days. Is discipleship A, about imparting life to one another? B, about giraffe uh, C, about uh, water management? D, about hymnals? You're not going to get them all. Oh, that's A. Done. There's no multiple choice questions. A, in life, and B, in the presence of God. You have to live it. You have to live it. What has God said to you? Are you doing it? Are you living it? It's the simple things. It's the part of your DNA. I love it when my children, adult children, start to hear themselves talking like me or my wife. They say, Dad, I'm sounding just like you. And I'm thinking, yes. <laughs> I pity your kids. You have to live it. You have to actually do it, folks. You have to do it. Oh, we argue with our minds, but we are so shriveled in our walk. Just live it. Love people. Serve them. Become vulnerable. We say, you know, I struggle. My, my wife and I are struggling. We're in a new situation and we don't have a lot of deep relationships. How do you get relationships going? The best answer I have is go first. Go first. Be vulnerable. Open your heart to someone. Say, here's what I'm struggling with. If the person recoils at the reality of it, you say, thank you, not a relationship I'm going to pursue. Right? You, you, if you get all 
like scandalized that I struggle with doubt, then we're not going to have a really big friendship. Because I struggle with doubt sometimes. I mean, nobody here does, I know. But I have, I think it was in the 80s on a Tuesday, right after a big earthquake. Yeah, and then I had doubt for 30 seconds. I struggle with those things. I struggle to make sense of what I understand the Bible to say. I don't want pat answers. I want someone to be honestly wrestling with truth with me. And if I go first and that person gets scandalized by my willingness to be vulnerable, I understand. Be nice, get out of here. They're, at least they're not ready yet. But when I share my own heart with somebody and there's a response of faith and love back, I know this is a place where, where relationship can begin. So when you're looking to build relationships, when you're looking to, to, to get deeper, to live it, go first. Live it. Live it. Go first. Take the chances. I remember the first time I learned this. I was in a group of, we were worshiping together. It was a group of students. We were, we were worshiping together, and I had struggled with a very real issue in my life. And I thought to myself, if I share what I am feeling with these people, they will reject me. They will, not, they will not, I'll lose my status with them. Because I had a certain status because of my ability to understand the Bible. I don't want to lose my status. And I, as we stood there, in the, we sat in the circle worshiping, the Holy Spirit said to me, you can have your status and your problem, or you can get rid of your problem, but it might cost you your status. Which do you want more, your problem or your status? I said, I, I don't want the problem. He says, well, then. And I remember, I remember the dilemma as I probably burst out, you know, probably threw up all over the whole group. And I remember the worship leader at the time just sort of sitting back and said, well, well, well. Big smile on his face. So Bible school students have problems, too? And I felt so loved at that moment. I really did. And that changed my life forever. And I have lived to this day in the beauty of that moment and that truth. That I can have my problem or I can get rid of my problem, but it may cost me my status. Live it. You have to live it. You can't just talk it. You can't know it. We have a saying that I say to myself all the time. If I know the answer to my problem and I still have my problem, I don't know the answer. I only think I know the answer. Because if I still am living in that problem and I know what I'm supposed to do, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. So open it up. Go first. Be vulnerable. Live it. After you learn to live it, the second thing you need, you need to live it, and then you need to love it. And love it is that you don't need to be persuaded to do it anymore. Right? Like, I needed to be persuaded to be vulnerable in that moment. And the Holy Spirit had to persuade me. And he had to persuade me by challenging me. Keep your problem and your status or lose your problem and risk your status. Got it. I want it. I want, I want the healing. I want to be saved from this perverse generation. Then you learn to love it. You learn to love it. Living in commitment with each other. 
living in openness and in honesty, in accountability, in serving, in sharing. The genuineness of all of that. You have to learn to love that. It has to move from what you know you're going to need to do to what you actually want to do. You know you love something when you pay attention to it when you don't need it. Right? You know, come on. When I was 17 and I started falling in love with the woman who would become my wife, I wrote her name on my jeans. Stupid stuff, right? I had a little notebook and I would write her name with hearts. How flippin' weird is that? I'm a normal guy. We don't do that sort of stuff, but not her. Oh, man. I could not think about her. I found excuses to go down the hallway she was in. Oh, I need to go past that room. Ah. I loved her. I think it was the start of love. I love many things. I love the New York Yankees who stink this year. I love them anyway. So when I can't sleep at night in John Singleton's house, I put my earphones on and I turn my my phone and I listen to the Yankee game till midnight. Normal people don't do that. People in love do. When you love something, you find reasons to make it part of your life. Find reasons to make truth part of your life. Find reasons to make friends part of your life. Find reasons to make accountability part of your life. Find a reason to. Learn to love it. Live it, love it, and then last thing stage is let it flow. Live it, love it, let it flow. Once you love Truth. Once you love commitment, once you love the presence of God in the midst of your friendships, just start to let it go. Be the same at work. Let it go. Let it flow. When you get together, let it flow. When you're talking to your friends, there's a friend of mine I just heard last night, right? They were in a, in a pub together, two, two friends, talking about life issues, Right? Sharing life together as believers, but the struggles and the whatevers, right? And the two guys sitting at the table next to them, one of them got up to use the loo, and the other guy says, Boy, you guys are really serious about life, aren't you? I never get to talk about life like that with my friends. In a pub, together, and now there's three at the conversation. And then two people from the table over there are listening in, and the one guy says, You listening in? Come on. And now there are five at the table because they're just letting it flow. They wasn't planned to go into the pub and evangelize. They just let it flow. They just let it flow. There it is. Let it go. Live it. Love it. Let it flow. Live it. Love it. Let it flow. Where are you now? There are areas in your life right now where you're learning to live it. That's okay. Learn to live it. Learn. Practice. Live it. Live it. What do you do tomorrow? Live it. What do you do after the day after that? Live it. There were times in my marriage where I did not love my wife real well. She annoyed the stuffings out of me, and I wanted to change her drastically. 
I know there's nobody in this room who could relate to that. You probably read about it somewhere in the book, but I was, I was miserable. Here was this girl that I married, and she's all wrong. She doesn't, doesn't do what I want her to do, doesn't think the way I want her to think, doesn't, so many areas. And I'm sitting there saying, oh, jeez. Oh. And, and I'm a minister at this point. I don't drink. I can't go to a bar and get loaded. I'm not going to fool around on her because I'll lose my job. <laughs> what, now what am I going to do? <laughs> Did I say that out loud? It's all recorded, right? <laughs> and then the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, your job is to love that lady. Okay. But I don't, yeah. But you're, that's your job, love that lady. And I realized this, that learning to love my wife was the shortest distance to the best me. The shortest distance to the best me was learning to love the woman he gave me. So I had to learn to live it. I had to learn how to live it every day. I said, I'm going to learn to love that woman. I'm going to learn to love that woman. I live it. I'm at the spot where I was just living it. It was hard work. It was intentional. It was pr- I had to pay attention because I was learning to live it. I wanted to learn to live as a man who loved that woman. And I learned to live it. And then after a while, I began to love it. It's actually fun, and now that we're no kids left in the home and it's just the two of us, it, I don't know why we didn't do this sooner. I would have kicked... <laughs> I'd have kicked the kids out when they were 12. Because <laughs> now it just flows. Now it just flows. I learned to live it. I found myself learning to love it. And now I let it flow. Wow, if a jerk like me from New Jersey can learn that in something as simple as marriage, you can learn to live it in the kingdom of God. Learn it, live it. Live it, love it, let it flow. Live it, love it, let it flow. Where are you? What are you learning? What do you have to learn to live? What are you just beginning to find yourself really loving? When is it time to learn to let it flow? Live it, love it, let it flow. Folks, listen, it's in your DNA. You have your older brother's DNA. You have the DNA of Jesus Christ. He lived it, he loved it, he let it flow. You do the same. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are incredibly grateful that we are, there are not enough words to say how grateful we are that you have called us out of darkness into the kingdom of your Son, that you have trained us to live as followers of Christ, to live as committed brothers and sisters, living in honesty and openness and accountability to one another. You have caused us to learn to live that, and we are growing to love it. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Please, Lord, 
continue to help us let it flow to those around us in our schools, in our jobs, in our neighborhoods, in our friendships, in our ministries. Let us beget according to our kind. Thank you, Lord.